You're now listening to Sound Talent Media. Check out more shows at SoundTalentMedia.com. Hey, what's up, everyone? I'm Matt Migaki, the vocalist of Cryptopsy and the host of the Vox and Hops Metal Podcast, where I sit down with fellow metal musicians. We talk all about their lives and music while sharing killer craft beers. If you've ever wanted to sneak backstage and share a beer with one of your favorite musicians, well, Vox and Hops is the podcast for you. This week on the podcast, I dropped an amazing episode with Dom Grimao of The Last Felony, Ion Dissonance, and Cryptopsy. There is this episode and over 450 other ones to help you enjoy life, metal, and craft beer. So what are you waiting for? It's time to become a Vox and Hops head. Cheers! Hello, and welcome to a special bonus episode of Fly on the Call. Today, I'll be sharing some of my favorite clips from the first year of the podcast. For new listeners, this will be a great starting point, highlighting some of my favorite artists and conversations while giving you a feel for the show. If you've been around from the start, maybe this will jog your memory of an awesome episode or get you to go back and listen to one you missed. Today's lineup includes Silverstein, Meet Me at the Altar, Spanish Love Songs, Origami Angel, Glass Beach, Proper, and The Wonder Years. And stick around until the end for a sneak peek of tomorrow's episode with Barty Strange, whose recently released album Live Forever is one of the best of the year. So sit back, relax, and enjoy. We're starting things off with Silverstein. I had an awesome conversation with lead singer Shane Told, celebrating the 10-year anniversary of their album A Shipwreck in the Sand, and came up with some never-discussed tidbits like this one. On like allmusic.com, it shows uh, Silverstein's original guitarist Richard McWalter as having like a composing credit on the end. Is yeah. that in any way accurate? Yes. Great. Wow. That's really, really, wow. That's really astute of you. Um, yeah, so, so Rich, um, yeah, Richard was our original guitar player and, uh, he, he's amazing. He's amazing. He's an amazing person, uh, and an amazing, uh, guitar player. So creative. And, uh, to, to me, like, you know, he was, he was like the, really the, the most important part of our band when we started. I think he was, he was the reason that we stood out because, some of the guitar parts he wrote were so cool, you know, whether it's like the intro to the intro and outro to uh, wish I could forget you, which is, you know, really cool, clean part that he wrote. And, and, you know, he's amazing. we recorded the six song, you know, demo EP. And after that, we had had a few other things that Richard had written and, you know, me and him were working on together. And one of them was the end. And Richard wrote the music for that. And it was in a really strange tuning um, where you tune the top, like the low string, you tune it actually up to F, um, which is <laughs> which is very, like a, up a semitone, which is a very, very unconventional thing to do um, to a guitar. It's been a very strange tuning. And uh, I was really intrigued by the, by the kind of the way that, that it sounded. So... Uh, you know, when Rich left the band, uh, I I said, I was like, hey, man, so, you know, that acoustic song you wrote, I really like it. And I, I really, you know, it's your song and whatever. I'd really like to use it. 
um, if you know if if that's okay. So keep in mind, this is like the year two thousand one. So like we're still two <laughs> years away from our first album even coming out. But I said, I said I, I'd really like to you, you know use this song. So I remember I listened to the like shitty like ghetto blaster demo um, that that we had made for the song, and I figured out how to play it. And I, I, he told me what the tuning was because I wouldn't be able to figure it out without knowing what the tuning was. <laughs> so I figured out this song, and I, I remember I, I had one of the first titles was it was called "Learning to Hurt." Was one of the first titles I wrote with with a bunch of different lyrics, um, and sort of different melodies. And I had that this this kind of idea of um of the song. So when we were doing the first album, uh. I had actually I actually tracked scratch like a scratch guitar um for uh for that song for the end which turned into oh, wow. the end. And so the first album it was it was supposed to be on the first album it was supposed to be the last track. Um and we were going to cut oof, what song were we going to what were we going to cut from the first album? I can't remember. Might have been November, actually. We we were gonna cut <laughs> November because we, we wanted to make a ten song album, and we were gonna have mm-hmm. have the end would have been the last track. And I remember um, I recorded all the guitar, and then uh, Paul recorded the drums, like the ending drum thing, which was different, mm-hmm. but not that much different. And uh, yeah, so sorry, I'm going on and on about this, but I never never talked about this before. And uh, no, super so, interesting. So, yeah, so so that I don't know. In the end, I don't know what happened. I think we kind of ran out of time. The first record was was made kind of crazy too. Like we we kind of ran out of time on the first album, and uh, then when it came time, so I kind of just forgot about it. And then when it came time to make the second record with "Discovering the Waterfront," I again I was like, "Hey, um, remember this acoustic song?" And everyone's like, "Oh yeah, yeah." I'm like, "I think it's really good." Like. I think we should put it on the record. And again, I demoed it. And again, um, again, like we recorded the guitar for it. And then again, it just, I don't know. It just didn't, didn't end up fin- getting finished. Oh, um, wow. <laughs> and then the third record, I think we didn't bother trying it. <laughs> I think that like we were like, this ship, ship has sailed. And then when the fourth record was, you know, Shipwreck in the Sand was, we were writing that, I was like, okay. So I know this song is like literally seven years old um, and it hasn't worked out, but I'm like, I really think there's something here and, uh, and I would like to, to, you know, actually do this one this time. Mm-hmm. And Cameron, cause he produced Shipwreck in the Sand and he produced Discovering the Waterfront, he remembered the, the acoustic song from discovering the waterfront like he, re, he remembered recording it and he was like oh yeah that actually like is a pretty cool like you know that's got a cool vibe to it so like maybe we should do it so finally that happened and i remember i played it for rich because we're still like rich we st- i still see rich like he lives in boston boston area now and i still we still see him like when we're out there and stuff so um we've you know we've we've been friends like the whole time and i remember he was living in australia at the time and this is before the record came out we were in australia i guess probably the beginning of 2009 and i played it for him and he laughed and he said 
dude. And 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 I, he's like, that's like you've like played it completely wrong. <laughs> <laughs> so like I I had referenced like the tape, the cassette tape recording that he just made like for me, or not even for me, just made like in the year two thousand. Um, and and he's like, oh yeah, that's like that chord you play there is that's not that's like not the right chord or whatever. And it, like of course it, it doesn't really matter, but it's just funny that I that I that I you know just played it I played it like, you know, maybe not wrong but different from from you know what he what he had originally written. So so there you go. That's 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 why. So that's why yeah he's got a songwriting credit because he wrote the pretty much the, the, all the music for that song. Meet me at the author or one of the breakout artists of 2020. Here's vocalist Edith Johnson talking about confidence and what drives her to be the representation she wants to see in music. I read in an interview too, um, where Edith, you said, you know, how you love being in a band full of women of color and because that was something that you like never had growing up. Where does that confidence come from? What led you to feel like kind of empowered in order to, you know, be this band that has like these such big plans that, you know, you're able to kind of like go out and just like make it happen. Yeah. So lack of is something that really motivates me. And whenever, I don't know, I was just, my parents raised me to be a very strong black woman who can do anything. They always told me that I can do absolutely anything I set my mind to. And I was like going to shows and you know seeing all my favorite bands one day i noticed and i was just like why am i not doing this because you know i have the talent i have the voice and there needs to be more representation so i like set out a mission to find people like me to do it with because it's representation is so so important so important especially for for young minds and, and young girls and because not everyone's like us like like i said lack of is so is such an empowering thing for us it's it's very it makes us even more ambitious but you know not not everyone's like that they might see the scene and and get discouraged and be like well i don't see anyone there like me so i can't do it and is it ever like a weight on your shoulders for all of you kind of like being those you know the ones that are being like you know held up as like this example of this i think it's the opposite um we feel like it's our our duty almost in but in a good way um because we we want to be that for you know the little black girls who are sitting in their rooms listening to pop punk who think there's no one out there like me because we were that that people um Mm -hmm. you know not not just black black and brown even little white girls because yeah even women in general severe lack of women in the scene yeah especially women of color um so it's like it's really cool for us to be able to do what we love and get to be that representation at the same time. It's like hand in hand. Um, and for us, we're the type of people that like, if we want something, we're gonna make it happen regardless of if we have help or not. Um, which is literally how we've, you know, gotten everything that we have today. So it's, it's cool for us to be able to do it the hard way so that other people don't have to. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah, and I mean, Tyranny as a song was kind of about, you know, you being underestimated as a band or as people. And um, I'm curious, how how has it kind of been for you, you know, especially as you're hitting these milestones? How has it been, um, like, navigating, you know, a, a music industry that's, like, the majority, you know, straight white men? It's been, um, 
I feel like it's probably um, possibly going to get a little bit more difficult as we grow in size. But also, we <laughs> we have had a couple of weird interactions. It's just, it's a lot of weird backhanded comments that I hope that the people that say those says aren't doing it on purpose and, like, don't realize. But we've had a lot of, like... Um, oh, like, you play better than me and you're a girl. Or we've had, like, we've walked into a venue before and they've been like, oh, girls' doors aren't open yet. That's, <laughs> that's happened twice. And one time we were, sitting in, um, we were sitting in a green room at a show we were playing and one of the touring members of the band we were opening for was like, this is a green room and it's for bands only. Are you supposed to be in here? It's just like... Ridiculous stuff like that. And when you go to a show, um, we do get weird looks sometimes. And then um, it hasn't really been super outwardly racist or super outwardly sexist. Hmm. But it's like these weird backhand comments that people tell us that's just Mm -hmm. like, do you know what you're saying? Like, do you know what you sound like right now? People definitely underestimate us. Like, as soon as they see us go on that stage, they definitely expect that we're going to not be you know like as good as we are type thing like they're gonna expect us to just do horrible just because we're girls and it's like no like we know what we're doing and you should expect more from us not just because we're girls we're gonna be bad i've had someone ask me if i was a merch girl for this other band (laughs) which is like he was like he was like um can i buy some of so-and-so's merch and I was like, I don't know. Go talk to them. <laughs> oh, was that in Chicago? Yes. Wow. Yeah. It's like we, even like there's there's good and bad in in everything. Uh, yeah. It's not just us who experience it, mm-hmm. um, but we don't let it really get to us because we know it's going to be there. But also, we know that we have to navigate through this to get to the point to where we're the ones who are able to make it a safe space for everyone um because like even you know listeners as as fans we've sometimes been the only you know people of color in the the venue so um it's like it sucks that it's inevitable but it is inevitable um just you know this is the world that we live in but we're still gonna do it and we're gonna do it with a positive attitude and it's not gonna be this way forever and mm-hmm. we're going to be one of the bands that's making that change. Spanish Love Songs put out what is probably my favorite album of the year so far, with Brave Faces Everyone. Dolores is one of the hardest hitting tracks on the record, so it was one I made sure we discussed. Another song that I kind of wanted to hit on um, was is Dolores, which I feel like is kind of, lyrically, I feel like it's kind of one of the heaviest songs on the album. Um, so I was just curious uh, to hear a little bit about that um, and the way that one came together. So Dolores, like during pre-production was, uh, and maybe I'll release like a clip of it someday, but it was like a mid-tempo kind of kind of Americana rock song with like this bouncy chorus. Um and we tracked it away and we really, we really liked it. Um, even though we thought it sounded a bit like a country song, like the working title was like <laughs> country road as a joke. Um, and, and like, it, unfortunately it stayed that way when we sent it to the label. And so everybody kept calling it country road. And I was like, Oh God damn it. Um, and then I, 
uh, we got into the studio and we started tracking drums. And the day before we were going to track drums, Ruben and I ran through everything one more time. And uh, we played it, and I was like, this sucks. This is not a good song. <laughs> uh, that sounds like a pattern for you. Started. Yeah, it drives it drives everyone insane. And I had like a little reverb pedal um, that I just got, and I was messing around with it, which it didn't even end up on the album. But I played a version with just two chords, just me. Um, and Ruben immediately was like, yeah, so we are going to do that one. Like, that's what we need to do. Um, and the rest of the band was like working on stuff back in Kyle's apartment. And we got back there and guys are idiots. Um, why would we change this thing that we already have that we pre-produced? Like, the point of pre-production is to practice the songs. <laughs> then when you get the dry run, so you go to the studio, you know what you're doing, right? And you can, you can explore things instead of trying to figure out the songs. Um, and so like, we were, we, yeah, we were recording drums in Orange County and I have like a little, uh, like a little production like groove box and I was like recording organ pads on it and structuring it and doing like a little drum loop. Like people thought I was crazy. And so our last day recording drums, we set aside half the day and Ruben and I flushed it out. Uh, and that kind of took its structure that way. And then from there it all kind of fell into place and became, um, what it is which is not a upbeat uh country song <laughs> and as far as like lyrically i feel like it's uh like i said it's like really hard hitting and i think it was it's one of the ones that like when it finally like hit me like it really hit me hard um just, like how did that like the lyric side of things come together for you um you know i was just writing i went off on like it was one of the last things I wrote lyrically for the album. I think it was that and then Kick. Like, those were the last two things I did. Um, and I, I, it was just something I had written down. Uh, and I know on Schmaltz, uh, we had a song where I was trying to tackle a similar subject. And when we got into the studio, I scrapped the lyrics completely because they were bad. Uh, and that song became El Nino Considers His Failures. Mm -hmm. So, like, it was a completely different song about, like, mass shootings and in america and stuff like that um and i struggled for a long time to find a way to talk about it in a than somebody like being at a song being like guns are bad you know mm -hmm. um like no shit <laughs> like I, I don't know um and so i i found a way in which is just through a story of uh of nurses working, you know, working the shift after a shooting. Mm -hmm. Uh, and, w oh, I, yeah, I remember I wrote it down because, uh, where were we? We were all working and it was when the, uh, the Texas shootings happened this year, like the back to back shootings. Mm -hmm. And so we, I was just like, cool. Like, here we go. Here we are again. Another album and, you know, uh, all the same shit's happening. And so it was just, yeah, it was a way a way to kind of get into it and just kind of vent some frustration uh and just tying into the theme of the album of like just empathizing with people who are seeing it from another another perspective and another side mm -hmm. um you know and largely working in a place where like i mean that story ostensibly takes place in texas right so like working in a place where people probably aren't as as anti-gun as i myself might be but still seeing the kind of ravages 
um, that these things uh, wreck on humanity, you know. Origami Angels' Somewhere City is some of the most positive and energetic music in recent memory. Fly McCall got the lowdown on the concept behind the album. I read that like you had you've had the idea for like somewhere city for kind of like close to two years um and that it was like originally going to be an ep before you were like convinced to make it an lp um how did like the original idea kind of come about and like would you call it a concept record yeah yeah okay so definitely i was i've always kind of wanted to do a theme like a location-based theme you know (laughs) um i've always just been obsessed with the more like the higher arching theme of escapism and like how it is just presented especially like in culture right now i think like everything is a form of escapism whether it's like memes or marvel movies or you know anything like that and any video game or sort of that and i think our music has always kind of touched on that and spoken to that but um what i was i remember sitting one night and thinking about an idea for an ep where the whole thing is location based and the whole thing is just about like different perspectives towards that escape i guess um and just the comfortness like the comforting uh factor that would be like able to be explored within an album like that and i i like you said i i did originally have the idea for an ep and i was pitching around to people and this was a while back so i don't think anybody took me seriously um <laughs> but then i remember i wrote the riff so i had some of the songs like the beginning of say less um the part where it's just guitar and vocals and stuff like that and where it cuts in and it's like a little dancey riff i had everything but the chorus for that in about like this time of the year 2017 mm-hmm. um and that was like one of the first things i had written for the record i knew that i wanted to have that be on a thing i don't know it was it was a little weird but i think it was around last february i sent lex from chatterbot she's also our manager um i sent her the beginning riff of welcome to and i was like i sent it on a voice memo or it might have even been a video of me singing it and just playing it no drums but with an electric guitar and all that and i was like hey thought this would be a really cool thing for like the first song on an ep called somewhere city and it would be a concept record about or a concept ep about you know a city and location about themes of escape and i sent that at like four o'clock in the morning and i woke up at eight to Lex being like, Ryland, you need to wake up right now. Ryland, you need to wake up. You need to <laughs> and then like just pitch this idea to me about like, take this, make it an LP. It'll be so fucking sick. <laughs> and I was like, okay, you know, Lex usually know it's good. So <laughs> there were some other projects that we had developing after that. Well, that idea kind of stayed in my head as this is what I want the concept to be. This is what I want. Um, our themes to be and then as i developed songs just trying to fit like those parts into the lp and see where we could go from that mm-hmm. as far as a concept record i definitely think it's it is a loose concept album um and when i say loose end concept i don't know it's weird um it's a concept album that doesn't necessarily have to be tied to the concept you know what i'm saying mm-hmm. yeah it's like sure. it's a little more 
I, I would say it's not as thorough as certain concept records have been in the past mm-hmm. um, in terms of the one dialogue, whereas it's more like there's a couple different points of view there that we discuss, like four or five that I think are all sort of different angles mm-hmm. of the same end goal, if that makes sense. Yeah, no, uh, definitely. For example, the song Escape Rope for me is it's the beginning of side two of the record. And it's sort of like, um, it's definitely the most negative song on the record. And it sounds like almost petty at points. And that transitions right into the title track, which is one of the more overwhelmingly positive songs on the record. And then the record kind of ends positively from that note. Um, Escape Rope is a point of view where it's like, from an outsider, I think, like someone who might not understand what a certain person is going through uh, on the first side of the record or understand a lot of the dialogue and kind of is upset at upset at someone from for leaving or upset at someone for embarking on their own journey, uh, which I think is just as valid of a, a narrative to sort of explore as one where we are just talking about the journey itself. Um, that was one that really fascinated me. It's one of the last three songs, I think, on the record that I wrote was Escape Rope. Um, and I, I remember writing and I was like, I'm kind of getting tired of this one narrative that we're exploring. I kind of want to re- explore the opposite of it and see how far we could get with that. Um, I, that one is definitely the most different, but it still serves a purpose to the overall angle of the record, I guess. Mm-hmm. So it's weird when, when the word concept record starts get thrown in, thrown around because it's definitely not a rock op. You know, it's no like, yeah. a, <laughs> no Tommy. It's not as, uh, I'd say it's not as thrill as, uh, for example, like Cosmic Thrill Seekers that came out this year. Mm-hmm. Like, that's such a good concept album that is devoted to its, its narrative and how solid that is and how solid they pulled it off is so amazing. And it's, uh, I don't think we could have done something as thorough as that with the record that we wrote. Um, ours is definitely a little more not as tied down to that one concept. Mm-hmm. But still... A theme i don't know it's a theme record maybe i'm not sure <laughs> yeah i was kind of gonna say something like that where it's like it's not like a record where it's just like 10 songs but it's also not just like one story it's kind of like in between like exploring that theme like you said <laughs> yeah exactly and i think um that's kind of what the whole city idea is too it's just like a city is not just going to be one type of person and one type of dialogue and one type of journey it's going to be filled with thousands of them really um, of all different people, all different stories, all different backgrounds. And I think that the songs are more of a, they're more individual viewpoints in that community of songs, if that makes sense. Glass Beach is one of the most unique bands with one of the most passionate fan bases I can think of. We discussed making an album album, genrelessness, and the democratization of music. It feels like a very like album-oriented album. Um, and so I'm curious about kind of like that process of like kind of fitting all the various pieces together, especially with how broad of a sound there is. Yeah, it was a, uh, it was a puzzle. (laughs) It was pretty complicated to get everything. I mean, when I, I I think you're, you're right about it being an, an album album. Like I, I 
say that there are like there are musicians who write songs and there are musicians who write albums and neither is like necessarily better but i've always considered myself more of an album writer mm -hmm. so when we were writing the individual songs like we didn't have like the track list like the track order like mm -hmm. figured out from the beginning but we did have an idea of like okay this should probably go after a slower song mm -hmm. or maybe lead into this song and and we knew we knew classic Jay dies and goes to hell part one was going to be the last the first song and we mm -hmm. knew orchids was going to be the last song like almost from the beginning like pretty yeah. much from when we first wrote those so when we say new we were always open for it's like but if we write a song that like would be a better opener or a better closer we were like open to it it just never happened yeah. um those so just like we're locked in in there and like some of the songs changed like pretty drastically tonally like dallas uh was like a different feeling song at different points throughout the production so like yeah th that, that was why like the middle of the album was always so like amorphous until it's, we like figured it out it, something was done dallas is, a, is an interesting one especially because some of these songs have kind of like a, a ship of theseus situation with them where, <laughs> yeah. where i wrote the song and i changed it and i changed that and i changed that and i changed it so much that the final version of the song has absolutely no musical material in common with the first version of it. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, the sequencing was really just a matter of like, I would listen to each song and then when it was over, I was like, okay, what song do I want to hear now? You know, it's, it's very... Uh, or sometimes even just like, what sound do I want to hear now? And then you would make that sound go into the next song. Cause like, yeah. this isn't Rat Castle, it goes into... Um, what does that castle go into? Planetarium. Uh, planetarium, yeah. And yeah. it's just like noise into noise. Yeah. Um, yeah, and there yeah. were there were a few where I, yeah, I planned out like specific direct mm -hmm. transitions between them because I love that. I uh, love yeah. when one song just like yeah. morphs into another yeah. song. <laughs> For sure. So, so, I mean, was it like, once you had kind of like the main parts of the songs, were, was it kind of like figuring out the transitions in between? Did that kind of like change as you figured out the track listing? Or were the songs like more complete before you uh, saw how they would be best be sequenced? It kind of all happened at the same time because it was yeah. just like pieces here. Like when Jay said it was a puzzle, that's a really good like uh, way to put it because like like you're doing like a big puzzle and you get a chunk of it that looks like it's in the middle and you realize it's on the right side yeah um, but that chunk <laughs> is mostly good but then you have to add other parts to that so yeah it, it really all kind of happened around each other yeah yeah th th there would be stuff where it's like okay these three songs are really good next to each other but mm -hmm. is that three four five or is that 10 11 12 or mm -hmm. you know um and yeah just just putting it together a little bit at a time i mean the sequencing came together as the tracks did yeah. yeah. <laughs> in the like Bandcamp like blurb description for the album, you talk about kind of like genrelessness and um, yeah, like the the democratization of music and stuff. And yeah. I feel like it's, it's somewhat related. The way it seems like in some ways the album's like polarizing. Like either you get it and you love it, or you're like, I have no idea what the hell's going on. <laughs> I give up. Uh, so like could you expand on that idea of like democratization of music and stuff and just like how it kind of influenced you yeah um so what I was kind of getting at there is I, I I feel like more and I mean I feel like this has been going on for a while but I I really think people are starting to care a lot less about genre with music and I feel like that's because a lot of the dividers that used to be between different genres are kind of going away mm -hmm. um because it used to be a matter of like, you know, if you lived in, uh, 
I mean, you'd listen to your local scene or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, or it was played on your local radio. Like, yeah, like styles of music were very tied to places. They were very tied to identities and stuff. But now, for the most part, people are listening to music on Spotify, like mm-hmm. Bandcamp and, and stuff like that, where there's really no divider between genres. It's just another way of describing the music. And I feel like people are branching out a lot more because music outside of like what they would have listened to before is becoming more accessible to people (laughs) and and what i was saying about democratization of music is now like you don't have i mean you don't need a label to get your music to everybody in the world (laughs) you know um you you, (laughs) and and any like uh any random uh band camp artist has like you know they're they're uh they have just as much a chance of blowing up as any major label artist. You know, it's just a matter of the right people finding it and sharing it. A lot of the, a lot of the barriers aren't there, you know, and I, I just feel we kind of uh, embrace the, the increasing lack of barriers in music, mm-hmm. you know? Yeah, it, it is, I mean, it's super freeing because we get to say like, no matter what, we know that we can put this in front of people. Yeah. Like we, we have access to that. And so we can make what we want. And if it is good, people will like it. And if that's, enough people like it, then then they'll like share it. And yeah. that's that's the other thing. Like the internet is so much easier to find a niche. So mm-hmm. like whatever weird art you want to make, the like even if it's like twenty people who would like it, the twenty mm-hmm. people in the world who would like it will find it. <laughs> you know? And it'll be great to know that they like it. Like it's, yeah. yeah. Proper's lyrics hit fast and hard in a way that doesn't often happen in rock genres. Here's more on the mindset behind the bars and making a point not to self-censor. I read in um, one of the interviews you did about the suburbs of my life, you were saying basically that like the most important thing to you was having good bars and kind of everything else in writing was like secondary. Um, yeah. Did that, did that kind of hold true coming into this album? Oh yeah, <laughs> yeah. Because I, I would just, I, I, I kind of had that that fear of like, am I gonna be able to top my first album? Because you know, I, I had years to write the first record. I, I wrote it at like 22, where I was like my most angry, and I was like, and I, everyone was just like, oh man, like these songs are so good. You're so angry, and like that would be the repeating theme. And I just was like, can I write something that's not angry and still be just as good, if not better? So, but also wanting to just like better bars harder punchlines like like just like a rapper would just be like trying to like have every opening line just be immediately like catches your ear or just immediately ridiculous to where you're just like what did they say so just trying to approach it like i need to do better than last time but also not lose my mind in the process (laughs) yeah i mean there's definitely like uh i guess i would call it maybe like a lyrical density (laughs) to the band thank you (laughs) (laughs) once it's like a train like once it starts going you can't really stop um could you like talk a little bit more about kind of like that style and how you like developed it i just man just just from talking shit honestly just from talking (laughs) some shit and then like because it used to be i would just write so many so many words so many verses and then like when i kind of like got more into learning about song structure like and not just cramming everything I can into like a three minute song and like actually structuring it and being like, Oh, well, a bridge would be good here. Like actual pacing yourself. is that's what I had to learn. So it used to be, I'd write like, I'd write like eight, eight verses. And I was like, there's no way the song is going to be under six minutes long. And then I would actually <laughs> like write the song. I would play a seven minute song 
back when I was just an acoustic artist, and it would just be like, I can tell that I'm losing people right now every second. <laughs> so it was a lot of dialing that back. And then just, again, from, like, from movies, just, like, show, don't tell. So, like, learning about exposition and how to just, like, say a lot in a little bit of time. And then going back to rap, saying a lot with a lot of ridiculous bars that catch your attention and also a little bit of time. So it just kind of went from doing too much and then just like, like, you know, what's that quote? Like, a, how do you sculpt? Like, you get a giant, a giant stone and you chip away everything that's not what you have in mind. So just going from there, which it took a long time. I think I've been writing lyrics for 11 years now. And it just, I feel like the last three years where I finally felt like I know what I'm like 100% doing and not just like, well, this one isn't that great, but everything else is fine. Like I'm happy with every part of a song and learning that I can have the music complement the song and not just be the backdrop. I can do a little like lick here and there instead of just having to stuff that part with like all these words. Yeah, just learning to pace themselves. Yeah, I think that's really cool that you can kind of, like, track that progress along the way and stuff, too. Um, Yeah. And you mentioned, like, kind of shipping back at stuff, like, the game vocals and, like, New Year's resolutions, and I spent the winter writing songs about getting better. They're, like, so kind of, like, simple, but, like, so powerful at the same time. And I think that... Thank you. Those are, like, standout moments on the album, too, in addition to, like, the really thick lines that you guys have. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you. Yeah, that was the goal, because the last record, I think, I I I, harm, I did harmonies on almost every song. I I tried to put gang vocals everywhere. And this time I was just like, I can do less with more. Like places where you think that gang vocals should be, I can just not do that and put like a really sick guitar part instead or like keys or something. So thank you. That was definitely the goal this time around. As far as like the lyrical content and you being like so open and personal with your lyrics, um, is there like anywhere that you kind of like hold back a little bit or like where do you kind of like draw the line with what you include versus what you don't uh no like i, I roasted my own family there's no going there's <laughs> nothing past that um really because i don't have too many like second drafts like once i write something like it, it i don't really change it like that's it i think mm-hmm. maybe like the most thing i'll change is like the song title <laughs> that's where i have the most like because asap rocky type beat was originally going to be called the hippocratic oath and i was like oh but that's like our first single, I want it to be something that people are just like, why is this called this? So I just, that's what I'll like think of mostly now. But just for, I don't know, I can't think of anything where I've just been like, oh, I shouldn't write that. Like I've always just like my first draft is what I go with, especially with how I, how earlier I was saying how like I'll think of the whole album before I actually start writing it. I'm like, well, this mm-hmm. goes into this narrative. So this has to, this has to be it. I'll have like oh, a lot of like fear of my family hearing it. And then I just have to get over it. The last of the greatest hits clips comes from The Wonder Years, my personal favorite band of all time. I spoke to frontman Dan Campbell earlier this year about a variety of things, including Burst into K2, 10 Years of the Upsides, and his work ethic. So that kind of like works into um, just about kind of like your overall like worth ethic. Um, like Sundrance Pavement Society last year was kind of supposed to be a way to keep fans engaged during like a slower time for the band, and it kind of ended up being just as busy as any other year for you. So, like, would you consider yourself a workaholic? Uh, you know, it's not like a, a thing I had really thought much about um, until I was reading these questions a few minutes ago. Also, I was like, oh, I'll read these things, you know, a day or two before the interview. And then I, again, the Bernie uh, lyric idea came up and entered up my whole day yesterday. Um, but as I was, I was texting my wife, and I was like, okay, I think I only have like another 150 to go. And she was like, you're such a fucking masochist. <laughs> and I was like, what do you mean? She's like, 
Are you kidding me? Do you remember when you did four shows in 24 hours? Like, do you remember when you, like, all these, like, insane ideas that you have? Um, and, yeah, I guess I really do. I like working. I like to work. Um, I like to feel productive. It makes my, my brain feel better when I am accomplishing things. And so, like, I start every day with a to-do list. And I just quickly as possible and start another one. Um, I have a tendency to be the person that's, like, if I have like a, a slow couple of days, I'll be in the shower thinking like, I could probably start another band and a podcast and a clothing company and a nonprofit, right? <laughs> um, you know, and then I'll like get to work on one or two of them. And then like an, a fucking ocean of Wonder Years or Aaron West or anything else stuff will, will land and I'll have to get back to work on that. Mm-hmm. Um, even harder now with, with the baby too, so. For sure. Yeah, and I mean... I feel like as a fan, that's been something that's been really exciting to see throughout the whole career. Um, and I'm just curious, like, how does it play into the fan base you feel like, and like the way that they connect to the band and the music? Well, I think that one, we're, we're very lucky because the fan base has been like incredibly dedicated. I don't think there are a lot of bands that get the longevity that we have and that are still just again, nerd shit but looking over like the data from this tour we're up from you know two years ago the last time we did these markets it's like it's kind of crazy um to have such i mean or it's just so lucky to have such a dedicated fan base that they kind of rides with us through whatever crazy idea we have and like there's not when we said that you know we're thinking about the four shows in 24 hours thing a lot this week because we were talking to free throw about it and trying to walk them through how it was like physically possible Mm-hmm. And then we started saying, can we do six next time? So table that maybe. <laughs> um, but, you know, there are not a lot of fan bases that'll go, oh, you want to do four shows in 24 hours? Sure, I'll come to a show where doors are at one in the morning or 10 in the morning, which two of the shows were. Like, um, you know, we, we just uh, we feel lucky that we have people that are like, yeah, I'll indulge your stupid fucking idea, guys. <laughs> Can you walk me through a little bit of, like, the process for the reimaginings? I mean, I know, like, on the second volume especially, there's um, a lot more experimentation, especially with, like, Washington Square Park, which kind of takes on, you know, a very different, like, context. Yeah, I think the, so the obviously the first step is, like, picking songs, and we, we just try to look at the, the whole breadth of the catalog and say, like, okay, like, let's make sure we're we're spreading it out. Like we don't want to do seven songs off of No Closer to Heaven or something like that. Let's make sure we're getting the whole thing. And so we're, we're going through each record, record by record and saying like, okay, like, are people going to be interested in another version of this? And are we interested in another version of this? And if the answer to both of those is yes, then can we do an interesting version of this song? Mm-hmm. Um, so that we assembled what we thought was the track list. And then we kind of just go in and say, okay, like, thesis statement for this one. What do you want to do to it? Like, does anyone have an idea for like the guiding light to how we're going to get this song to a different place? Mm-hmm. And so just song by song, we, we go through that. And then we went to the studio with, uh, with A-Senders and Nick Kuzazi and at a uh, lumber yard and uh, kind of went through it with them, showed them the ideas, listened to their input and went to work. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And you mentioned like doing it with Ace at Lumberyard, And I know that's, kind of where a lot of the Aaron West stuff comes together as well. Was did, was that project something that like influenced the idea for the first one or the process of either of them? I think that the only thing that I could say like a categorically, categorically influenced was going to Ace. Um, <laughs> was just knowing, you know, hey, here's somebody 
reasonably local that I know that at that point, like I worked really well with and Michael worked really well with is he tracks some drums on there and West stuff. And, um, I mean, like, let's, let's try it. Let's give that a shot. And well, we had Vince Roddy mix both of them and thought he did an amazing job on both. And we're really happy with how all that came out. Yeah. And, um, were there any like songs that you kind of wanted to have on either of the volumes that you just kind of couldn't crack like the deconstructing of? I think the only one that had gotten brought up and then we were like, wait, this isn't going to work was uh, Kennedy really wanted to do You Made Me Want to Be a Saint from Suburbia. Mm-hmm. And we were like, okay, how can we make this song that has a literal blast beat in it work <laughs> acoustic um, or like stripped down or like whatever you want to call it, vibey or however we, we define these songs. Because I don't want to define them just by like the guitar that's being played. I think they're more than that. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, we, we were just like, that might be too tall a task right now. Let's table that one. Maybe we come back to it at a different different uh, burst in the game. And finally, as promised, here's a clip from tomorrow's episode with Barchi Strange. Be sure to hit that subscribe button so you don't miss it, and follow the podcast on Twitter and Instagram at Pod to stay up to date on all the exciting things to come. Take me back to when you're heading out to record the album. How are you kind of feeling? How did things flow? What was the energy like uh, in the barn? I just... You know, I remember wanting to record the record and, you know, I, I had reached out to Jamie in, in December um, and said, like, you know, hey, like, I've got this song that I like um, and I'm about to go record a record um, and I really want to work with you. And I was really excited because I had a really clear picture of what I thought the record could be and I remember what getting the players together, everyone was just really excited. Like we all kind of went into it with this idea that we wanted to like, we, we weren't thinking, oh, let's make like the best record or anything. We were just like pumped to make it together. It was like me, Brian D'Amelio, Carter, Zumptabell, you know, um, uh, Dylan, um, God, what's his last name? He plays for, um, shit. I'm horrible. I'm forgetting everything. <laughs> Anyways, Justin Foster, all types of people from Brooklyn were in the room. It was pretty sick. Um, and, you know, we were all in different bands and we had just always been like, oh, like it'd be so sick to be in a band together or to play together or to like do something. Um, he plays an alto polo there. Um, Dylan Tracy. <laughs> Sorry. God damn. He's like one of my best friends. I could not let that go. I was like, no. I. But um, anyways, yeah, like, you know, it was just all these people that, you know, I've really respected and always wanted to play with and finally got us all in a room and we were just like yo let's track it let's do it ourselves let's mix it ourselves let's kind of prove to ourselves that we know what we're doing <laughs> you know and, and like and that's what we did it was like a fun experiment for all of us and um you know it was really exciting because it was kind of like a dream you know like oh yeah let's leave in the winter time and go to upstate new york and record a record in a barn you know it felt very <laughs> um fairy tale and i was stoked to go like organize it and like mm-hmm you know, it'd be my my music, so it was cool. Thanks so much for listening to this special bonus episode. I hope it hit on some of your favorites and gave you something new to dig into as well. Fly on the Call is brought to you by Sound Talent Media. A special thank you as always to The Alternative for helping to promote the show, Kaylin West of Tiny Stills for the theme song, and Michaela Jane Palermo for the artwork. You can keep up to date by subscribing to the podcast and following the show on Twitter and Instagram at Pod. Feel free to email any questions, comments, or other feedback to me at flyingthecallpod at gmail.com. Black Lives Matter. Please vote this November. Fly
This is Krista Makes, guitarist and vocalist for Less Than Jake, and host of Krista Makes a Podcast, a songwriting podcast where every week I'm joined by an amazing guest to break down the writing, recording, and release of one iconic song from their career. In our giant, evergreen back catalog of episodes, we've had rock legends such as Dee Snyder and Huey Lewis, punk rock favorites like Mark Hoppus, Fat Mike, and Brett Gurowitz, and up-and-coming artists of today such as Liz Stokes of The Beths and Genesis Owusu. We've had guests from all genres and styles of music, and I guarantee that if you peruse our back catalog, you'll see several episodes that'll make you say, man, I gotta hear that. Whether you're a fan of music or a creator of music yourself, you'll take away a whole new appreciation for the songs you know and love. Chris Makes a Podcast is available for free on all the places you could possibly listen to podcasts, and new episodes come out every Monday.